Hello, this is Deanna Singh, and I am here with Culture Matters on International Business Podcast. When you're developing your international business, one thing is often forgotten, cultural differences. The Culture Matters International Business Podcast does exactly that. Focus on international business and cultural differences. Chris and Peter guide you through the maze of business and cultural differences in every podcast episode. Get the global perspective here at the Culture Matters International Business Podcast. Hello, my name is Chris Smith and I am here with Peter Vendor. Good afternoon and a good morning or a good evening as well. You're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We are on no less than episode on number 150. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, this is really a good time to do so. Put this thing on pause, go to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify and just subscribe to this podcast. Oh, and one more thing before we get to the meat and potatoes of this show. Um, we're running a webinar on how to do business with India and that will be on March 2nd, 2021. All right, you can find out more by going to culturematters.com slash webinar, culturematters.com slash webinar. Today's guest is Deanna Singh. Deanna Singh, the author of Purposeful Hustle, wants to live in a world where marginalized communities have power. As an expert of social entrepreneur, she's obsessed with making the world a better place and she will build or break systems to create positive change. While tackling complex social challenges, Indiana gives audiences the tools and courage to imagine, activate, and impact the world as agents of change. Diana is described as a trailblazer and dynamic speaker, and she is, who is at the forefront of social change. She's an accomplished author, educator, business leader, podcaster as well, and social justice champion. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Hey, Deanna, how are you doing? Wonderful. So great to be here with you today. All right. That's good to hear. Hey, Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Thank you very much. That's, at least that's um, so we've got three people on the call here. Deanna Singh from um, Milwaukee, um, Peter from Atlanta, myself from Brussels. Um, but of course, that's not the focus. The focus is on our guest, and, and that's you, Deanna. So uh, just as... as um, a very first question. Um, we're recording this on February 11, uh, 2021. Um, how, are, just, how are things concerning Corona? This is for people listening in the future wondering, Corona, what was that? So just tell us a little, a little bit about that. What's going first on in your, in your neck of the woods? First of all, I just want to relish in the fact that there will be a time where people will say, Corona, what is that? Uh, that'll, uh -huh. that'll be amazing. Right. And, yeah, um, you know, I, I think that we're, where we are is where everybody in the world kind of is right now, wanting to understand better how we got here, wanting to know what we can do to expedite the process, to make sure that we can get more people in a healthier position faster. Um, I think there's lots and lots of questions just around the vaccinations, um, you know, whether, uh, how, how fast they're coming out, what the methodology is that's being used to deploy them. Um, but I think everybody, is is anxious for and excited for the opportunity to be able to put this in our rearview mirror. I don't know that we will be able to do that in any short term um, and certainly hope, you know, as I've been talking to a lot of people, my hope is that 
this is an opportunity for us as a world to think about what have we done to get here in this in the, in the first place and what can we do to position ourselves so that for future generations can say corona what didn't you do this oh i'm so glad we do this now right that that, that this is really a learning opportunity for everybody all right okay well thank you for for that kind of comment this is not a political show this is about culture and cultural differences uh, and in, in the broadest sense of the world re- word, really. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where do you come from? Maybe originally somewhere else. Um, and uh, what I'm interested in, in is your so-called cultural frame of reference. And with a cultural frame of reference, um, I don't mean a two-week holiday in Cancun, Mexico, for instance. Absolutely. So I actually am a a biracial woman. So my mother is African American. Her Mm -hmm. family comes from a very small, small city called McGee, Mississippi. Uh, My grandfather actually got work on the railroad as an African American man of his time. That was really awesome. And so he took that work on the railroad and my grandmother and my mom and the nine siblings followed my grandfather up from Mississippi to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So they ended up growing up on the north side of Milwaukee in a a project together. And my father is actually from a very small village in Punjab, India. So my father was the first in the whole village, not just the family, but the whole village to leave the village and come to America. And he came to Milwaukee because he only knew one person in America. And that one person happened to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My parents actually met. I like to tell people at the most romantic place in the world. Okay. So prepare yourself for this, Peter and Chris. Yeah. We're almost on Valentine's Day. I got my pen ready here. You can't oh, see it, but they, it's here. There you go. They, they met at a Petro, at a, at a gas station. Okay. And so the no. reason why they met at a gas station is because my father was working and basically living at a gas station. That, and my mother was working third shift in a factory, and she would stop at the gas station on her way at, to and from work. And, you know, they started to chat, which is kind of interesting because my dad didn't have any command of the English language. He could say transactional things like this much on that pump. You know, what else would you like with that? Here's your change, those kinds sure, of things. But sure. Other than that, really no command of the English language. Um, and, you know, they, they but, but my mom is somebody who loves, loves, loves uh, to feed people. And when she realized that my dad, this really nice person was, you know, at the gas station, he didn't really have anybody here. And he was just had like a little hot plate. Uh, she decided to start bringing him food. And anyways, what, what three months later, so they only knew each other for three months, three months later, they decided to get married, not having the same language, not having the same religion, not having the same food, cultural references, any of those kinds of things. I'm super proud to share with you that they celebrated 41 years of marriage this last Wow. My God. Is yeah, that, so- is that diamond or something already or not? I, I can never keep up with them, but uh, <laughs> but it's extraordinary and awesome and, is, and really and really quite beautiful. So um, I when I think about you know my my framework, it really is based on having the experience of growing up with two people who because I came a year later, so growing up and and with two people who were trying to build a bridge to one another. Now, what makes it the the story I think even more interesting is that as if it wasn't already, right? Because I love telling my my parents' love story. But what makes it even more fun is when I was about five years old, 
Mm-hmm. My parents decided to move into a suburban area of Milwaukee and they bought a three bedroom ranch style house, just three bedrooms, normal 1950s, you know, ranch style house. And they decided to open up the doors to that home to anybody who was looking for a place uh, to stay. And so what ended up happening is we became kind of the Ellis Island, particularly for people who were coming from our village and the surrounding villages in Punjab, India. Mm-hmm. And so as I grew up until I went to college, we had on average about 30 people living in this three bedroom wow. home with us. Some of them would stay with us for a day or two. Some would stay with us for years. Um, and what was fascinating for me is that as a young child, I was the only person in the house who had a command of both languages. And so it became my job very quickly to be the person who was communicating, you know, and helping people build those bridges too. So not only did I watch my parents do it as a, as a very little child, I then was able to help other people do it too. I I have very fond memories of helping people understand that, nope, nope, don't put your mail in the green bin because that's garbage, but put it in the blue one, right? Because that's the mail or um, helping people with their driver's tests, even though I, I remember being five and surrounded by adults, not the behind the wheel part, thank goodness, but the uh-huh. but the written part, right? Like helping them uh, navigate that because I could read and and they didn't have you know English as as yeah. uh, as their first language. So that's my framework. Is it's all been about building bridges. It's just an interesting thing that a lot of people think indeed. And when you talk about Indians, everybody thinks that, that every Indian has an MBA, they speak English, and they're they work in IT. That's that's what the outside world thinks about India. While in actual fact, it's about five to ten percent of the of the. It is the it is the largest producing MBA factory, if you want, of the world. Uh, but it's only five to ten percent of the of the Indians who actually have a com- some command or a decent command of English. So it's that's well. This is my own personal experience, which which brings me, which is a nice segue to my next question. And Peter, interrupt, interfere, and 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 disturb as much as you want, right? With this, yeah. because and I was I was triggered by your last name being Singh, um, because there are millions and millions of Singhs in India, mm-hmm. um, which is it's uh, if I'm not mistaken a religious s- s- streaming, if you want, or or, or direction. Um, and with that belong certain rituals, like certain bracelets, etc. Um, so, and so you inherited that, or you you kept that, if you want, from your dad's side. Then I did. You know, it's interesting because most. So the the history with the name Singh is that it actually means lion. And people, uh, Sikh men, have the middle name Singh. So when you are meeting a Sikh man, it's often that he will have his first name, middle name Singh, and then last name. So my father's actual name is Bachin Singh Gill. Gill is the mm-hmm. village that he comes from. Bachin is his first name. Singh is his middle name. When he came to America, he was registered and everything as Bachin Singh. Got married as Bachin Singh. And so that's how I, as a woman, received the middle name Singh. Now, the reason why Singh is used is because it means lion, it means protector. And so the mm-hmm. gurus really wanted every time for a man, when he, his name was called or somebody called his name, to be reminded that his responsibility was to make sure that he was protecting the community. Now, the girl's middle name is normally Kaur. So really, if my dad had registered here and, and gone through all of it, you know, and kind of understood what the difference between the surname and all that, I mean, that shows to, again, his command of, of the English language. Uh, I would have been Deanna Kaur Gill. And Kaur means princess or royalty or you know, kind of queen like that. Mm-hmm. And the reason why the gurus wanted that name is because they wanted to make sure that every time 
a woman's name was spoken or she spoke her own name, that she was reminded that she should be treated with respect. And so uh, the names Singh and Core have very, very deep meanings. I'll tell you a funny story about this because my name really sh- was supposed to be uh, Deanna Core Gill. And I think some people in my my family, I'm the only one in my family who has an American first name. So my sisters are Ranjit and Kalbir. Mm-hmm. Sound very different than Deanna, right? And so my grandfather, when I graduated from high school, he gave me a beautiful gift. It, he got a gold-plated necklace made for me. But in, instead of it saying Deanna, my grandfather called me Diana because it sounds more Indian. So he'd say mm-hmm. Diana. So in gold, instead of writing Deanna, he wrote Diana. Instead of Singh, which is my real middle name, he wrote Kaur. And then instead of, you know, the last name being Singh, he wrote Gil. So I have a gold-plated, beautiful necklace that I was given as a gift from my grandfather with none of my names spelled correctly. (laughs) It was gifted to you and it is yours. It is mine. And I treasure it because I loved when my grandfather called me Diana Kaur, Diana Kaur, right? Even though. uh, Yeah, this was actually a better gift because now you have a great story to tell. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely, that's true. If if I if I can if I, um, jump from 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 the lion um, through the hoop, through um, uh, the elephant uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the elephant, yeah, it's 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 what I what I've read from your your LinkedIn profile is is that one of your I don't know if I can say if I can if I if I can call it a mission. Um, is to make to make this world a better world, a better place. Um, and and how how have you done that, or how do you do that, and do you do this beyond the United States as well? So what I do is I run a company called Flying Elephant, which is where why Peter's joke was so was so funny. Uh, uh-huh. The company Flying Elephant is an umbrella organization for four social enterprises. So social enterprises being defined as businesses that were created to try and solve for a social issue. So when you ask the question, how am I trying to make the world better? Well, in many, many ways, but also through business, right? Also through the ways that we show up in the world um, through those four entities. And so one of the things that I think kind of brings all the entities together, because they do very different things, but one of the big themes that brings them all together is that they're all grounded in what I think my purpose is in life, which is to shift power to marginalized communities. And so if you look at my LinkedIn profile, you'd be like, wow, this one, I've done all kinds of things. I've started a tech company. I've taught, you know, elementary to the postgraduate level. I have a business degree, a law degree. I've, you know, I've just done, I, I was the CEO and president of multiple large foundations. It really, really had an eclectic past. But if you pull that thread through of shifting power to marginalized communities, it all of a sudden makes more sense. And that's the same thing with our businesses too, because we have one business focuses on getting books out that feature diverse children. We have another business that really focuses on trying to close the birth disparities and birthing outcomes for women of color. Another company that really focuses on this idea of finding your purpose and making sure that leaders can find their purpose and live in it. We call that Purposeful Hustle, and it's built off of my book, Purposeful Hustle. And the fourth company is actually called uh, Uplifting Impact, and that's where we do a lot of our diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Now, I think that the that work is kind of intermixed into everything that we do and it's intermixed into all of the companies that we that we operate because we believe that if people want to thrive if we want to see on a global level right to your question of what does this look like on a global scale if we want to on a global scale see people thrive 
see marginalized communities really have power, then we're going to have to figure out how to do more of that bridge building that I talked about that I learned, you know, when I was a child, we're going to have to figure out how we do that, how we create strong bridges, how we create structures that people can walk across and really feel like they're bringing their whole selves. What would be, if I may inject one question, if you have a, what would be a practical example of building some of those bridges? Yeah. One of the things that we have noticed is that when people are within a marginalized group within their companies, it becomes very difficult, number one, to, to kind of show up and feel like, oh, I'm, I can belong here. I, I am part of this group. I think another thing that happens is people have different ideas because of the backgrounds that they may come from. And if they don't have that first feeling of belonging, it's really hard to bring that innovation to bear, right? It's really hard for them to say, hey, this might be a different way for us to think about this, or this might not work in this geographical region because of the things that we're doing. So I think one of the biggest practical applications of it is that it allows for people to get that sense of belonging, but also allows, therefore, that bucket of innovation to open up. And do you do this beyond the United States as well? Oh, absolutely. So in the last six months, we've talked to over 75,000 people in over 30 countries. Um, and that's been a great joy because not only is it, is it awesome to be able to share, here are some of the things that we've learned, here's our toolkit, please go out and use it. But it's also been really amazing to hear how people are using uh, the work in different places, right? How people are using the ideas in different places. And now I would imagine from, from well, I would say my cultural profession as well, is that if you design a blueprint in the U.S. To, to, to bridge social gaps, for instance, that is um, something that might work in, in the U.S., but that is something that might not work in, in India or in Thailand or in, in Russia. I, I mean, I don't know what countries you were talking about. Absolutely. You know, you have to be careful when you have these frameworks because there are sure. regional uh, and ge geographical um, and language and cultural aspects that change the way that you might use some of the structures that we talk about. But I think one of the things that we always start with, and so our, our goal is always to work directly with our clients to really understand what are the perspectives that are coming into the space and coming into the room and, you know, kind of what, what are some of the things that we need to do and nuances that we might not be aware of so that we can incorporate them in the work that we're doing. But another really important thing that we try to remind people of when we're doing our design work is that at the end of the day, we're trying to human better. You know, we, we are trying to figure out like how we make those connections. And some of those things don't actually change, right? Some of the things about how do we human better with one another are consistent across cultures. Now, the the delivery of it might differ. The language might differ. The Again, the, the the framework, the method, uh -huh, exactly. The method might might differ, but the underlying themes and principles may remain the same. It's the yeah. thing that you're that you're saying, Peter. We all do the same things, but we all want the same things, but we all do them differently. That's yeah. which is one of your your slogans, I think. No? Yeah, one one of my slogans is uh, Diana is everybody does the same things differently. Right. Uh, and it uh, completely fits also one of the one of the slides that Chris built uh, that we use in webinars, which is how do you get to a certain goal, for example, in, uh, in project management is how do you get from A to Z? And then a Dutchman does it in a certain way and an American does it in a certain way. 
And along those lines, if you work across or work with different nationalities, that might make clash because maybe a Dutchman say, what is this American doing? I, I don't understand or vice versa, while the goal is the same. So it's just how do you get there and along that way, and maybe you call it human better because that's where conflicts uh, arise, right? So I'm, I don't understand why this Dutchman has to go back and forth so much. Uh, while we can go in a straight line towards our goal, for example, and things like that. So that's that's uh, that's definitely uh, one of my slogans. And the question, maybe then now that I'm rattling on a little bit, uh, is if if you would pick out one or two of of the main issues or problems that you see uh, in your field of work, wh- how would you define that problem? What what do you see as a the main problem when it comes to mm. uh, the initiatives that you deploy? I think one of the hardest things that we have to do, especially in the business context, is help people understand the importance of empathy. So when you say the word empathy, a lot of times people think, oh no, she's going to get super touchy-feely. This is not appropriate in the business world. We want to talk about things we can put in an Excel document. And I get that. That's where I come from. That is where I, that's where I feel really comfortable also. Mm-hmm. But because people have that kind of response to this idea of empathy, they often lose sight of how incredibly important it is in order to get to every kind of business objective you are trying to think about. So in the example that you just gave of trying to get from point A to point B, if we don't build in empathy and the understanding and giving people the opportunity to build up those skills, then it is really hard to look at somebody else who's trying to get to the same goal and to not look at them with judgment, but to look at them instead with, wow, is this an opportunity for me to learn? You don't make that uh, jump, right? You, You don't get to that kind of thinking unless you have really equipped your leaders with this understanding of empathy. And so you can't get to your bottom line. You can't get to your Excel doc. You can't get to your profit portfolios. You can't do any of those kinds of things unless you have people who can understand how to look at things from a different perspective. And I think too often, because we've painted empathy in this corner of that's something touchy, we do. Touchy feeling. Uh-huh. Yeah, touchy feely. That's something we do in our own time. That's not, you know, for for the corporate boardroom. Um, we have we have negated probably our most powerful tool in being able to make change. Yeah, maybe empathy. I don't know, Chris. If you use other words, but sometimes I think in in terms of the word trust, because sometimes trust is e- is easier for people to swallow. Like, okay, yeah, I need to trust somebody to do business with that person, and it becomes less touchy feely, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because again, if you do things differently and you look at that pe- person doing things differently, you you not necessarily have that trust immediately, and therefore the business outcomes might not be the best. So I don't know, Chris, if you have words that you use uh, uh, that are related to what what was just mentioned. Well, it's I, I was I was thinking on a different path to some extent, is because like I I think that that you a, a U.S. designed blueprint is something you cannot you cannot directly use in India. Parts of it will fit, parts of it will not fit. You need to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you, can you give us an example in terms of, of you design something in one place, be it the U S in this case, may make it concrete. And then you, you take that to India in your case, or I don't know what other countries you might have Peru or, or I don't know what, what, what other places you've been to and, and, and try to yeah. do the same thing and then bump into something like, Hey, 
why doesn't doesn't this work here? <laughs> so I think one of the things that um, we've seen recently, right? In, in America, there's been a lot of reckoning around racial inequality. And there's been a lot of conversation just about how organizations respond, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, uh, what they're doing to perpetuate some of that uh, racial inequity inside of their businesses. And so, you know, nationally based, we've been having a lot of those conversations. Well, what's interesting is that for our international clients, they also are having these conversations, right? Because many of our international clients sure. have large bases in the United States. And one of the things that we realized is that people from different places were like, what are we talking about? Why is everybody talking about this? Or I don't, I don't really understand it in that same context, because while we might have racial inequity in our country, it's based on the caste system. It's based on right the, these other uh, components that are social determinants that are different than what's happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that was really interesting and quite fun, actually, when I kind of, if you can add those words, right, to, to the developing these frameworks, uh -huh, was, sure. thinking, was thinking through what is what we're dealing with here in the United States, what are some of the historical things that would make sense to somebody in a different part of the world? Because the interesting thing is that while we have these different things going on, many of them are happening in parallel, right? Many of these awakenings or many of these reckon, they're happening in parallel. There's different characters that are part of the, the conversation. And so that's part of the the learning that our team has had the opportunity to do. That's what I say. It's fun. Like we love learning about other cultures and we love learning about what other, you know, what other people are dealing with. And so that's been, a, but that has been a unique one, especially kind of given the last, I would say seven, eight months. Mm, okay. It's, it's one other thing, which I, which I think is, is part of, I think it blends in nicely with this is because you talk a lot about diversity as well. Right. And and again, this is a very um, not not even Anglo-Saxon, but very American word, um, because diversity in in your country, the United States, means something very different from what it means pretty much in the rest of the world. Because we call we we simply talk about cultural differences. You talk about cultural diversity, but there are are, are different levels of diversity that you have in typically and and typically only in the United States. So if you um, if you look at at um, what would be the biggest, if you could say the, big, the biggest or three biggest obstacles uh, an, an organization could de could 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 do or be to be more diverse, and um, and is is that diversity always a necessity? Meaning, and I and and this this comes from a personal side. My 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 middle daughter, she's twenty five years old. She recently posted something on Instagram. We, we in the Netherlands are going to have elections mid-March. And her simple simple statement was, vote for a woman. And then I wonder, that for me, that's that's not talking about diversity. You When you talk about politics or talk about for fulfilling a job or changing a car tire, you want the person that does the job best or cheapest or, or the combination thereof. And whether you're a, a woman, a dog, uh, 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 the, the yellow, blue, that that doesn't matter. Pick the person that does the job best. 
So a couple do, you, of things. do you understand what, why, where, what, yeah, what, what I'm, okay, good. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple things there. I think the, to answer the first part of your question, um, I think that one of the biggest things that you can do as you're thinking about diversity is defining what you mean by it, because diversity can take on a whole slew of different things. It can be sure. by race, by age, by geographic, by, you know, uh, by ability, by, um, pedigree. I mean, there's so many different things, right? Like that can. And so I think making sure that people understand that there's, and then there's intersectionality. There's people who identify in multiple different categories. And so I think having a sense of, and an understanding of how broad the term diversity can be is great. I think that's important. And I think that having that conversation is like step one, right? 101, step one, that's where Mm -hmm. you go. Um, to your question, though, around, you know, does this look like, um, uh, you know, best best versus diversity? And I, I you didn't say it that way, Chris, and I don't mean to put words into your mouth, mm-hmm. but we get this question quite a bit, right? Sure. Like, especially from hiring managers where they'll say, well, is it better for me just to hand, hire directly? They'll ask us, is it better for me to hire a diverse candidate or the best candidate? Exactly. And I think one of the things that I would like to do is I would like to push back before that question even comes. Because here's what happens. And and again, not trying to pick on you, not picking on you know anybody who might have done this, but I, this is just an exercise that we go through. So I would encourage your listeners uh, to do this too. We ask people to define what you mean by best. And a lot of times, or best fit, or cultural fit, or some of these words that we use to say, you know what, yeah, diversity is okay, but but really what we want is this, right? So whatever you use to fill in, fill in the blank there, right? And oftentimes what we realize is that when people are pushed and you ask, you ask it one or two times, you push a little bit to say, define what that means, define what best means, what they will often come back with are characteristics of whatever the status quo is. So they'll often come back. So if you're in a male dominated field, right? Uh, you know, I was just talking to a bunch of uh, stockbrokers. Well, same question. Ah, diversity, but we want to hire the best person. Well, tell me what that means, right? And you start to peel back that that question. What you see is that a lot of times the characteristics that they're using to define what best in that space looks like are really just characteristics that we normally attribute to men, right? So they would say, so then all of a sudden you have to say like, okay, well, are those really the characteristics that we should be, that we should be looking at? And if, and if we weren't, looking at characteristics and we redefined what we thought best were, then we would see that actually, you know, saying that, that, that we're not saying, let's, we're not actually saying best, we're actually saying best man, <laughs> right? Like that, that, that's really what we're saying. And so I think that's one exercise that we encourage our clients to go through because oftentimes that's, that's what's really going on. Mm. I think another thing that's really important is to understand that for so long, for so long, the reverse has already been in effect. So for so long, we have said to, and we'll use this example for uh, for women, since you, you brought this up. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. No, I think it's great. It's a great example. Again, not picking on you at all, but all right, you know, but if you say like, hey, who are our politicians? Oh, you know what? They have historically been men. And is it been men because they're the best? No, it's been men because we've thought that men should have these roles. Now, again, I don't know enough to know that that's the case or whatever, but that certainly is the case here in the United States. Yeah, yeah, and so sure. once, you have, once you have that as your basis and you say, mm, okay, well, we've been doing that for many, many years. So for someone to come back, I'm with your daughter, right? Like for someone to come back and say, let's bring in a woman. It's essentially saying out loud what has been said 
forever about men. Let's bring in a man. And so I think it's just important for us to understand that sometimes we try to pit these things one to one and they don't, they don't really exist because one of them has been done silently and one we're trying to do vocally, but it's actually very, very similar in, in the impact in which it has. Mm-hmm. So those are just two things I would, I would push. I would just, just a little, just a little push, 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 push back. I like that pushing back because I, I have, uh, I have three daughters, by the way. Um, and also it's an international family. My wife is from Venezuela. But the, the, I think you're right, Diana, uh, and uh, I agree with you that uh, this is actually a scientific fact that people seek out similar others. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it's personality or race or language or uh, men or women, uh, it's, just, it's just a scientific fact that that's what that people tend to do. That's what they, again, the, I will use the word trust. And I, in fact, I have used one of my slogans. I, I call it the, I like me more. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like the similar me's. Right. Uh, and if you look at the United States Senate, somebody, I forgot the exact statistic, but I think it was like two thirds of the United States Senate is a 65 plus year old white man. Right? Is that a good thing? Is that the best candidate then always? Well, according to them, it is, right? But if you ask me as a father of three daughters, I think the, uh, a better mix would be better if you ask me. So, yes, I, 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 uh, I, I like that question, define best. I think that's a very good question. And you can fill it in with anything, you know, because just the words that we sometimes use. And again, never from a malicious standpoint, but best fit, cultural fit, you know, th- mm-hmm. those things. It's, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. It, the science proves it, but also anecdotally, we've seen it every single time we've gone through this exercise. So Chris, vote for a woman. <laughs> I'm not voting. I'm not, I'm not voting. Oh, you're not voting. That's right. Yes. I'm not voting. And I'm simply not voting because I am a Dutchman, but I don't live in the Netherlands. I've got nothing in the Netherlands. I know that you're voting, that you're voting uh, ballot. It's, um, um, and I cannot vote in Belgium. So the, for me, there's no reason to vote. So, uh, but otherwise, I, if I, if I, if I could vote, then I, I would. But it's a tedious process, and 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 it doesn't change anything because I've got nothing in that country. Come on, don't let don't defend don't let me defend myself on this topic. We've done <laughs> we've had this already. We've had this already. Um, all right, I um I think we are at least around thirty minutes more or less in our call. And that's um, in in our recording, that is. And um, I think maybe we should uh, sort of ease towards the end. And it's something I totally forgot to prep you for. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Diana. Um, <laughs> and it's I'm sorry. And and um, but I'll 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 give you the, the question. The last question is now the one but last question is um, is can you give us three tips? To become more culturally competent, and and so that's the question. I'll give you some time to think. So that can come from your your own personal experience, from your if you want your upbringing, um, your your work experience, um, or your your failures or the the bumps that you had to take. And they 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 don't have to be rocket science. Um, that's not what I'm looking for per se, but just, you know, from your experience, when you talk about your field of expertise, give us three tips to become more culturally 
competent or more culturally aware? And usually I prep my guests before this question, but I totally, it just totally slipped my mind. I'm sorry about that. So I'm putting you on the spot. And if you can only come up with one, I'd be very grateful as well. Nope, I've got you. Okay, good. All right, okay. up to you. Over to you. So if I could leave your listeners with just three tips, there are three things that I think are incredibly important. The first is to make sure that you are assuming when you're going into conversations that may be a little bit tense or maybe uh, you know a little bit difficult, you assume that you might be wrong. And you go into those conversations with my second thing, which is assuming best intentions. So when you go into those conversations, also assuming that the people who are on the other side of them or who think differently than you or who maybe are struggling with some of these concepts, that they really do have the best intentions. It'll make step number one uh, much easier. And then my third thing would be to make sure that when you are listening, you're listening to understand. A lot of times we listen and we want to listen so that we can get our argument better. We want to listen so that we are prepared when the the questionnaire, you know, the the person we're listening to stops talking, that we can come back with something really intense and, and really impressive and really that states our view. And we miss the opportunity to understand and to grow and to learn. And so uh, those are all things that I think that if you have those as your basis, you really can move further and you can move faster. Which is habit number five from the seven habits of highly effective people from Stephen Covey. Listen yes, to understand, is. not to re- not to respond. It's not literally like that, but um, I think it's his fifth habit indeed. Okay, good stuff. Good points here. Um, I've got them written down. They will be in the show notes as well. Peter, do you have anything else to add or or? Uh, no, no. I, I like that. I like the uh, the three tips a lot. I think uh, not assuming. I think in one of our early podcasts that I did with you a couple of years ago, I think you asked me the question. Uh, what I would do, and I said the exact same thing. Don't assume, yeah. yeah, or assume that you might be wrong, right? Right. Yeah, because it makes well, you split split up the word. Let's not do this because this is a non-explicit. <laughs> this is a non-explicit show, so we're not going there. Last question, Diana, if I may. Then, um, if people want to know more about what you do or about you, how can they get in touch with you? Best. If you uh, want to know more about Uplifting Impact, our diversity, equity, and inclusion work, please go to upliftingimpact.com. We also have a weekly podcast that's specifically geared at leaders who want to add DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion into their practices. Uh-huh. So we'd love for you to be able to join us there. If you have any questions you know, from this, from this opportunity or things that you want to do or just want to stay connected so you can see all the other places that we show sure. up in the world, uh, please check us out on LinkedIn. Just go to Deanna Singh. All right, we'll do that. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. And um, we'll be in touch for sure. Fantastic. Thank you, Deanna. Thank you, Peter, for hanging around here and uh, participating in this po- on this podcast as well, number 150. If you are so kind uh, to leave a review in iTunes, that would be fantastic. Uh, the more stars, the better. The more reviews, the better. Of course, the music you hear in the background comes from Ben Sound. Check them out at bensound.com. I'm Chris Smith, together with Peter Vanderlinde, and this was the Culture Matters podcast on international business. And we'll be back soon. By the way, 
way, two weeks ago in episode 149, we talked about how to work internationally or how to work with internationally uh, virtual teams. So make sure you check out that episode as well. Oh, and one more thing before I go. Again, the webinar, March 2nd, culturematters.com slash webinar. How to do business in India. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Overlooking cultural differences when you're developing your business internationally can be the biggest mistake you can make. Let Chris and Peter help you avoid those mistakes. Get in touch now. Go to culturematters.com.